Welcome to the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Tree Leaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. everyone, it's a celebration today of um, a pilgrimage I'm making in a few days to go to the homeland, the holy land, where the Buddha lived. And it's important for us to remember that the Buddha was a man of India. We like to think that what the Buddha taught was totally original to him. But I have to tell you that the more I have looked and immersed myself in the other religious traditions of India, I have to say that what the Buddha taught was a wonderful variation on a theme. I'm not saying he wasn't original, but I'm saying, well, you know, the Buddha taught that all things change, but there's something that transcends all change and this and that. And uh, if you look at a lot of the religions of India, they teach that this world of samsara, that's a Brahmin world, a Hindu word, by the way. It's not something, a word that the Buddha came up with. Is a world of change and frustration. But there's something that transcends that beyond all names and categories. So we might say what the Buddha taught is not just that all things change, it's kind of like, while all things change, all things stay the same. <laughs> and it's true about Indian religions too. Now, Nishijima Roshi was once asked about Christianity and how it compares to Buddhism, and he said it's very dangerous for an outsider to comment. And I'm going to do a great injustice if I try to interpret uh, Indian Hinduism or Brahmanism for you. Uh, first off, I'm an outsider, but... Also, there are 10,000 flavors of these religions. and Well, there's 10,000 flavors of Buddhism, so who am I to speak for Buddhism? And if there are 10,000 flavors of Buddhism, I'm going to tell you there's 100,000 flavors I've found of uh, Indian religions. Every possible combination of belief in gods and who they're worshipping and what they interpret is possible. But yet, but yet, some themes are so perennial. They're at the heart of this. And it's not just, you know, into Brahmanism and Hinduism. I'm also visiting the Sufis uh, while I'm there, the uh, Islamic mystics. And they, too, at the heart of their beliefs, believe that there is something that transcends this world, apparent world before our eyes. So, again, the more things change, the more things Stay the same. So much of what Buddhists taught, I mean, it's like if you listen to Beethoven, you know, Beethoven was totally original. He was a genius. Yet, he's playing the same music, the same instruments as more or less as Mozart and Bach. 
you know. And that was the Buddha. The original themes you're going to hear here when we're looking at the Bhagavad Gita, you're going to say, oh, we know that. The, the Buddha was given his own, shall we say, twist, his own perspectives on this. And then you come down to Stravinsky, who wilded it up. You know, same, same music, same instruments, but it's all, no, you know, noise coming everywhere and banging. That's a, that's a terrible thing for someone to say. Stravinsky was much more than that. <laughs> but Dogen was the fellow who wilded up the traditional themes. But yet you're going to hear so much of the same, even amongst the difference. Even later Buddhism, you know, um, became very worshipful. And Buddha went into becoming a kind of God with the bodhisattvas who, when you pray, would come to this world to help. Well, it, there's a question about whether the chicken and the egg, did Hinduism get that from Buddhism? Because they saw, oh, the Buddhas are getting all worshipful about having someone to pray to. We need folks to pray to. So actually they, they took uh, the Brahma, who was some form beyond name, beyond all form, and they, they made up, you know, Vishnu and Shiva and all these characters that you could pray to. This is the difference between Brahmanism and one of the differences between Brahmanism and Hinduism. Hinduism became very much worship of your own personal Messiah or God, your own little Indian Jesus or Amida Buddha. And so was it the Indians who took that from Buddhism because they, they said people don't understand that there's something beyond all name or form. They need a little statue. They literally need a little name, an image in their mind with arms and legs that they can pray to who will come down and help us. And so you have Vishnu and Shiva or you have Amida Buddha or even Shakyamuni. And then esoteric Buddhism came from India too, you know, like they do in Tibet. And uh, again, it was probably came from the Hindu side more, but someone said, you know, it got all complicated, very magical. And someone said, you know, you can't just have a God. God's got to have a girlfriend and a consort is the, the right word. And, You've seen the statues maybe of, um, well, you know, they, they do the great deed that makes the world. It represents wisdom and compassion. And then this became very influential on tantric Buddhism, where you've seen the statues where they've taken poor celibate Shakyamuni, and you may have seen a girl sitting in his lap. And uh, that's his concert, and they're doing the, the deed that creates the world. So... The more things change, the more things stay the same. So let's just, I'm, this is not going to be a deep commentary. I'm just going to read a section on the Bhagavad Gita that teaches communion through meditation. And uh, I hope you hear that a lot of the same music and themes uh, reverberate through that. The blessed Lord Krishna said, It is the man who performs his duties without dependence on the fruits that deserves to be called a renouncer and a yogin. Yogi or yoga, by the way, means not what we think of like housewives and middle-aged fat guys in the suburbs doing stretches. That's what it's become in the West. Yoga is any of a series of practices, including zazen, to bring the world together into its wholeness. Okay. But the true yogin is not dependent on the fruits of what he does. Not 
the one who keeps no fire or avoids works. For one who desires to ascend the path leading to the heights of spiritual communion, yoga, detached work is the means. For one who has ascended it, quiescence is verily the means. Equanimity, not wishing to attain, not attached to the goal or the fruit of what you're doing, but to do the practice nonetheless. To light the incense, to bow the bow, without in your heart needing and grabbing for something to get out of it. What does that remind you of? When one ceases to be attached to sense objects and to one's actions, then that one who has thus abandoned all subtle hankerings, hankerings means desires, and self-centered objectives, is said to have ascended the heights of spiritual communion, not being attached to objectives, not being overly desirous or uh, to be filled with equanimity and acceptance. This is through all these traditions. Now, here's where we're going to start to get to maybe some differences, but it may be that original Buddhism was closer to this than even what our practice is, and I'll explain that. I'll confess that that we're trying to do something very tricky here. All these traditions believe that this world of samsara and desire and confusion and disappointment and death and, and, and suffering was something to escape from by getting beyond it to the world that is so beyond all that that we're beyond all desire and great peace. And so you'll see the yogis in India, for example, do all kinds of things, sometimes with the body, keeping their hand up in the air to try to transcend the body, keeping their hand up in the air for a dozen years. And to get out of this world, what are we trying to do here? A tree leaf in modern Western Zen. I sometimes say we're trying to have our non-cake and non-eat it too. We're trying to be in this world and yet not of this world in the same way. We're trying to know the same non-attachment, the same equanimity, while still in our day-to-day -day busy lives of living in a world of hard weeks things that disappoint, life and death. Even though we're here, we're still trying to, in our hearts, know what the yogi here is trying to know. Beyond desire, not being attached to sense actions, not be attached to the goals of one's actions. Knowing the that one that has abandoned all sub subtle desires and self-centered, selfish-centered objectives. That is true yoga. Zazen is yoga. So we're sitting in the cross-legged position. This is a yoga position to bring the wholeness and the harmony, you see. We're just trying to do it, I have to say, in, in the suburbs and in the cities. in our hearts, keeping our arm up in the air for 10 years, maybe.
All right. One should uplift one's lower self by the higher self. One should not depress or downgrade oneself, for the self verily is both the friend and the foe of the self. To him who has subdued the lower self by the higher self, the self acts like a friend. But to him who has lost his higher self by the dominance of the lower self, the self functions as the enemy, always hostile to him. We try to get past our greedy, selfish, angry lower self to know our true self, our higher self, beyond all division, beyond all greed. That is beyond all life and death. And to live by that more, it's the same as the yogi in India trying to get past the greed, anger, and ignorance of the selfish little self to something greater. What do we practice every day but this? In our own way, but just the same. In one who has conquered his mind, the self remains steady and unperturbed in the experience of the pairs of opposites, like heat and cold, pleasure and pain, honor and dishonor. We too try to not be prisoners of the mind, the device of thoughts. We too seek to know the stillness, the quiet, the equanimity at the very center of this world of heat and cold, pleasure and pains, honor and dishonor, ups and downs, sickness and health, life and death. We're yogis. Yogis in the suburbs. We're trying to do the magic trick. But we're trying. We have to think that maybe the suburbs and the most secret spot under the Bodhi tree in India are just the same. That's something I'll get to at the end of this talk. Continuing, a yogin whose spirit has attained contentment through knowledge, that's wisdom, wisdom knowledge, and experience, who is unperturbed, who has subdued his senses, to whom a lump of earth and a bar of gold are alike, such a yogi is said to have attained steadfastness in spiritual community. Again, beyond judgment, beyond likes and dislikes, where we have aversions to dirt. We want the gold. We want health. We don't want sickness. The yogi is trying to get beyond the attractions and diversions, trying to know the equanimity and steadfastness at the center of it all. Do you have to travel all the way to India to know this? Perhaps, but I think you can know it where you sit. Especially noteworthy in excellence is he who is even-minded in his outlook on friend and foe, on comrade and stranger, on the neutral, on the ally, on the good, and even on the evil ones. Let's continue. Let a yogin constantly practice spiritual communion, residing alone in a solitary spot, desireless, possessionless, and disciplined in body and mind. Now, this is where the 
historical Buddha was probably more like this than we are. I'm looking at my house out here, and I'm telling you, I'm not possessionless in a material sense. I got a two-car garage there with two cars in it. Little old cars. They're both 10 years old, but they're cars. Buddha didn't have a car. wonder if he had a garage. Probably not. He didn't have a car. But the point is the yogi... You know, one thing I learned about Hinduism, by the way, another practice is they divided life into four stages. Kind of very practical. First they said, you're a young guy, you know, go to school. Then have a family with kids and a business. Feed your kids, you know, take care of your family. Then when the kids are kind of out the door, the wife, you take care, you know, wife, you know, you're getting up there. Then you become a wandering mystic. I thought, you know, oh, you become a wandering mystic from a start. No, they said, get your worldly responsibilities taken care of. And then, you know, you can wander around for a while, live in the forest, which, by the way, was in those days pretty comfortable. Just find a tree, you know. And then you could be a mystic. So, you know, Nishijima was kind of like that. He was a businessman all his life. And then at the age of 50, his family was kind of out the door. And he said, now I'm going to be a Buddhist priest. He lived another 40 years. But do we have to find a solitary spot under a tree in India? Do we have to be desireless, possessionless, and disciplined in body and mind? I would say in the heart, again, we may have some things because we're homeowners, householders, people in the world. But in your heart, you must cultivate the spirit of being solitary, being quiet, being desireless, being not attached to possessions. If the house burns down, part of you may cry and part of you accepts it. If the ones you love die, part of you cries. Part of you is beyond all thought of life and death. This is the tricky practice we're doing. I, it may be easier, as we I discussed last week with a little talk, maybe easier if you're under a tree than living in a, a cul-de-sac in the suburbs, but it's our practice. Now the instruction on meditation. At a clean spot, which is neither too high nor too low, a seat should be made with kusha grass. That's what they used before Zafus. Buddha probably sat on kusha grass, basically a pile of straw. Spread over with a skin and a cloth. Firmly seated on it, the, yoga, the yogi should practice spiritual communion with mind concentrated and with the working of the imaginative faculty and the senses under control. Zazen! We're a variation of this. There are some types of meditation that try to concentrate, 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 and get, you know, very focused and beyond all thoughts. But we're also in shikantasm, letting thoughts go, not being prisoner of the thoughts, not grabbing the thoughts. A version, a variation of this, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Okay. Holding the body, head, and neck erect, motionless and firm, gazing at the tip of the nose, and not round about. Fearless, serene, restrained in mind, established in the vow of continence. 
you know, not overdoing it with the the fun stuff, you know, the exit to excess, being continent, you know, we've discussed this before. The Buddha was more like this maybe than we are. He was celibate. We get married, but we're celibate in heart as best we can. We're discussing this on the precept on sex these days. He should sit in spiritual communion with me. Ah, now there's a thing, me. There's something beyond name. This is, you know, this is a very, very subtle point where we try to distinguish ourselves from the Brahmins and the Sufis. You have your God. You have your Brahmin. He's a great cosmic spirit. We speak of emptiness. Now, your guy, technically, is beyond all name. You don't say what it is. The more you try to put a label on it, you miss the point. Then we have emptiness, which is the more you try to put a label on it or put a name on it, you miss the point. It's the great wholeness interflowing that is not separate from all this. It is all this world of separation and division. But when we taste the silence, drop the names, drop the thoughts of what it is, emptiness. Is this the same? Is it different? I think it's the yoga of trying to find that wholeness that transcends all this division. I'm going to say, though we may not call it Brahma or we may not call it God, why should we call it anything? but I didn't deafen you guys with my table slam. I tried one of those Zen table slams, s- slam stunts, and I blew it. Maybe I'll just draw one of those circles in the air. Okay. So you call it me or my or Brahmin or Stanley, God, emptiness. No skin off my nose. Whatever it is, it's the wholeness that brings all the separation, the separation, which is all the wholeness, the form, which is precisely emptiness, the emptiness, just form. Where was I? With the mind restrained from going outward to objects and always united with uniting with the supreme in spiritual community, the yogi attains peace, which is the summit of bliss and enduring establishment of my state. Now, we've talked about this before too. Many types of meditation seek to get away from this world into a deep, deep, deep samadhi where they attain bliss. You can do it, man. It's as good, I'm telling you, as opium. I've been there. In our form of meditation, we're trying to be in this world, yet not. We're trying to know the bliss that's very subtle, that is this world of all our little emotions, without being prisoners of the emotions, without being prisoners of our anger and our greedy desire. We're still trying to know the peace and joy and bliss that's in the heart. Even as you're crying because your cat has died or your dog sick as she, sorry. Even as you're heartbroken by what this life will sometimes do to us. You're crying and there's bliss. That is to be Satori. There you go. 
That's what it feels like to me. So <clears throat> we're not trying to get to a place where it's bliss, 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 all the timeless time, and we stay there. By the way, I've known people who do that kind of meditation and bliss, 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 and the minute they come out of it, it's like a guy coming off drugs, you know, into the withdrawal. Maybe what we're doing in a, in a subtle way is more enduring because we're not trying to get to a blissful place and stay there. We just got it, man. We just got it. This world of disappointment and sadness is our bliss. All right, anyway. Oh, Arjuna. He's the other character being spoken to here. Success in yoga is not for those who eat too much, nor for those who eat too little. It is also not for those given to too much sleeping, nor to those who keep vigil too long. Yet a lot of these traditions, you know, really went to excess, not eating at all, trying to get away from the body by not eating or keeping your arm in the air for 20 years. I, have you seen the guy in the picture of the guy? I'm going to India. Apparently, these, there are a lot of these guys. I'm, I'm bound to see one of them. You know, I won't shake his hand because I don't know how you do that. But uh, the um, point is, this seems to be a preaching, a way of moderation which is what we practice. For one who is temperate in food and recreation, who is detached and self-restrained in work, who is regulated in sleep and in vigil, yoga brings about the cessation of the travail of samsara. Oh, there's that word samsara. Thought that was a Buddhist word we invented. Hmm, they must have stolen it from us, even though this was written, I believe. How long was the Bhagavad Gita written before the Buddha? Uh, several a thousand years? Three hundred years? Three thousand years? Really? I are you giving me a Zen sign there, Johnny? A long time before the Buddha, they were already talking about samsara and that which transcends samsara. When the disciplined mind is able to remain established in the Atman alone, when it is free from longing for all objects of desire, then it is spoken of as having attained to spiritual communion. Um, Atman is this great thing. And there was a debate later in whether the Mahayana Buddhists and the Zen Buddhists brought back Atman accidentally when we talk about our true self, the Dharmakaya, Varachana Buddha, who's like Brahma, you know, he's the universal Buddha. Did we accidentally bring it back? We're stuck with it, even if we did. But what uh, I like to say is get beyond even words like Varachana Buddha or the Dharmakaya or the ultimate or the true soul, self. Get beyond be words with Atman, the true self, or Anatman, no self, and you'll know your real self. When it is free from longing for all objects of desire, then it is spoken of as having attained to spiritual communion. In this daily life, we try to be not free of all objects of desire, like some folks in India literally stopping breathing, like the Buddha tried for a while, or stopping eating, but the way of moderation, to be free even as we live in a world where we have to have moderate desires. Don't go to excess. You may need a, some transportation, an old 10-year-old car, you do not need that latest Alfa Romeo, perhaps. You know what I'm saying. Okay. You may need food. You don't need the extra dessert. 
By the way, going to India, I have to confess, part of my diet plan. I am not a curry fan, and I apparently will be eating curry in the morning, in the afternoon, and at nighttime, plus all the other things that go along. When I come back, you probably won't even recognize me. Half the size. Half the size. Okay. The flame of a lamp sheltered from wind does not flicker. This is the comparison used to describe a yogi's mind that is well under control and united with Atman. The state in which the chitta, the mind stuff, with its movements restrained by the practice of yogi finds rest, in which is experienced the joy of the spirit born of the higher mind intuiting the spirit, in which he, the yogin, experiences that endless bliss which is beyond the ken of the senses but is intuited by the perfect intellect or wisdom, like we speak of wisdom, wherein established one does not waver from the truth, having attained which no other gain is considered as greater, remaining in which one is not shaken even by the heaviest of afflictions, thus ever engaged in making the mind steadfast in spiritual communion and having all the impurities of the mind effaced thereby, the yogin easily experiences the infinite bliss of contact with Brahman. It's the same thing again. I know the bliss that's not a matter of being blissful all the time. Know the peace. This is what I say our practice is. Know the peace that is so peaceful that it's not a matter of the heart always feeling peaceful all the time. The story I tell all the time is I was in the hospital with a da my daughter dying, filled with fear, filled with sadness, filled with what terrible heartbreak. And yet there was somehow a peace that made all my lack of peace okay. I call it the big okay. I don't think that it says in the Bhagavad Gita, the big okay, but I think that's what they're talking about. Know this big okay. Even if you don't feel it's a bliss that doesn't require you to always feel bliss, bliss, blissfully bliss all the time. That's how blissful it is. It's a great bliss with a big B that's not a matter of small human bliss or no bliss. The man of spiritual insight, established in same-sightedness, sees the self as residing in all beings, and all beings as resting in the self. We are all one. All beings are us. We are the great emptiness, Brahma, Varan, Karabuya, whatever you want to call it. God, Stanley, I don't care. It is us. We are it. I am that. I'm reading Nishigadharta these days too for my trip to, you read him? I am that. That is it. What are all these other the yogis say? You are, you are it. I am you. You're the thing, the thing, you know. Okay. He who sees me in all beings and all beings in me, to him I am never lost, nor he to me. Established in the unity of all existence, a yogin who serves me, who serves me present in all beings, verily abides in me, whatever be his mode of life. Oh, Arjuna. In my view, that yogi is the best too, out of a sense of identity with others, on account of the perception of the same Atman and all, feels their joy in suffering as his own. No comment needed. Basic compassion. What, O oh Krishna, do never neglect the compassion of this practice, 
for the wisdom alone. The suffering in all beings, the bodhisattva vow, we will rescue all beings because their joy and suffering is our own. What Now, the Buddha, being a man of India, also picked up some other stuff that uh, maybe we, some of us, like Stephen Batchelor and me, say, Stephen Batchelor, I don't me, Stephen Batchelor, the great Stephen Batchelor, and little me says, perhaps we don't need, because it really came from Brahmanism and Hinduism, and the Buddha was a man of his time, so he picked it up. One of the things is transmigration into future lives. I'm an agnostic on it, as you know. I say, if there are future lives, be good in this life. If there are no future lives, be good in this life. If there are heavens and hells in the next world, I don't know, but I've seen people make heavens and hells in this world, and if you live good in this world and it gets you a better rebirth, well, the point is to live good in this world in any case. Okay? I think that's what's being said here. Listen to this closely. What, O oh Krishna, is the fate of the man who, though endowed with a firm face, is not steadfast in his practices owing to distractions and therefore fails to reach spiritual perfection? The blessed Lord Krishna said, The fallen yogi goes after death to the spheres of the righteous and, ever, and after having lived there for unnumbered years is reborn in this world in a pure and prosperous family. Or he is reborn in a family of men full of wisdom and spirituality. Rebirth under such conditions is passing hard to get in this world. There, O oh, Sion of the clan of Kurus, he will regain the spiritual discernment of his previous birth, and then he will strive harder than ever for perfection. Rebirth. Now, you know, the Buddhists, we tried to say, well, we don't believe in a soul like these guys. So we came up with some other really creative explanations for what goes on to the next world. But I'm telling you, the more things change, the more things stay the same. I'm just showing you, the Buddha, this was not the Buddha's original idea. Anyway, okay, now, do we need to go to India? I'm going to India in a few days. Why? Why go to India? Why did Bodhidharma come from India to China, one of the great koans? Right? And I've got a few examples here. There are literally dozens of responses to this. It's that time of year. Love me tender, love me. Okay. That's our oil heater. A tradition here at Tree Leaf is the annual singing of Love Me Tender by our oil heater. All right. A monk asked Shang Lin, what is the meaning of the patriarch Bodhidharmas coming from the West? Sitting for a long time becomes tiresome. You know, we don't overly explain the, the uh, uh, koans, but I think this is something like, you can't just sit there, you got to go someplace. I mean, you could sit there, but why did he come from China? Why did he come from China? Why not? You couldn't just sit there, got up, and he said, I got to go someplace. Go to China. Do I have to go to India? No. What am I going to find in India that's not here? Nothing. Well, yeah, I'm going to find Indian things. It's a very interesting country. Might as well go. If you go to India, go to India with all your heart. If you don't go to India, don't go to India with all your heart and be where you are. See? So why did the Bodhidharma come to China? He had to do something. 
But when he came to China, he came with all his heart, right? He didn't come halfway. Put all this whole thing into it, and that's why we're here today. Okay, what's the next one? The monk answered, the oak tree in the front yard. That's the one of the classic ones. Uh, maybe it's like saying, because he did. <laughs> it is what it is. Okay? Everything in life. Why did I go to India? Because I did. Why did I not go to India? Because I did. The tree in the garden. Okay. I like the next one. Why did Bodhidharma come to China? Come from, come, why did Bodhidharma leave India and come west? The cow has given birth. Take good care of it. I don't know. I, I, I think it's the same thing. He came. He brought Zen. It's The cow gave birth. He gave us this thing. Let's take care of it. He brought the tradition. Whatever his reason for coming, we got it. Let's maintain it. Okay. And then uh, Master Dogen and Shobo Genzo Hensan and a couple other places uh, gave uh, typical Zen masters talking out of both sides of the no-sided mouth. Ta quoted a famous koan variation, Bodhidharma did not come to the Eastern lands and the second patriarch, his student, did not go to India. There's no place to go. You've heard me say this all the time. In a world beyond division, when you get up to Brahma, there's no place to go. It's right here, there, every place, and no place at all. You see? So Brahma, of course Bodhidharma got on a boat, came to Canton, China. I visited his temple when I went to China a few years ago. There's a temple where he came. And that's supposedly the first place he landed. They got his footprint there, I think. This is Bodhidharma's footprint. They'll point it to you. See? It's kind of enough. Put, people put incense around it. So he obviously came because there's the footprint that's proof. But he didn't go anywhere. When I go to India, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going from right here to right here. Okay, now, Dogen said this a couple more ways. I'm going to take a couple extra minutes with this talk today. First off, his nice classic way in the Fukan Zazengi. In general, in our world and others, both in both India and China, all equally hold the Buddha seal. The Buddha seal is your Buddha nature, your truth. It's right where you are. I'm looking at it right now. Where is India? Look at your feet, look at the sky, look in your heart. You are more in India than you are right now, folks. You are India, the Holy Land, the sacred source. All equally hold the Buddha seal. While each lineage expresses its own style, they are simply devoted to sitting totally blocked or stable, resolute sitting, stability. Although they say that there are 10,000 distinctions and a thousand variations on what people teach, they just wholeheartedly engage the way in Zazen. Why leave behind the seat in your home to wander in vain through the dusty realms of other lands? If you make one misstep, you stumble past 
what is directly in front of you. If I go to India looking for the answers, I'm missing India. If I'm going to India with the no need, no place to go, the peace, the bliss, man, the bliss beyond all earthly bliss or sorrow in my heart, every step I take is a total arrival. As I say, this is a practice up the mountainless mountain in which every step is total arrival. Every step on my trip this week, I hope, from the time I get on the bus to the airport, to the time they lose my luggage, to the time I am sitting under the Bodhi tree where the Bodhis, Bodhi sit, Bodhi, where the Buddha, Bodhi, Buddha, Bodhi sat. You got that. Anyway, I'll be sitting there. And uh, from the time I'm with the Sikhs and the time I'm with, uh, uh, by the way, pronounced six. I, I, I learned that. I've learned all these little, it's not the Sikhs, it's the six. And with the Sufis, and in Brahma's temple, in Vishnu's temple, in uh, wherever I am, it'll be every step is a total arrival. So why leave behind the seat in your own home to wander in vain through the dusty realms of other lands? If you make one misstep, you stumble past what is directly in front of you. This practice of ours is a search and a voyage to learn that there is nothing in need of seeking, and every step is total arrival. Every step in your crazy life is a total arrival. Even if it doesn't feel like it, it's the bliss that's blissful even when you're crying. And when you're smiling too, fortunately. Now, that was Dogen on his nice poetic days. Here's Dogen saying basically the same thing. I found this uh, in Yoji, and I think it's basically saying the same message but in, in Dogen's more blunt way, even after the Futsu era of the Liang dynasty, that means centuries, even centuries later in China, after the time of Buddha, there were some who went to India as pilgrims. What was the use of that? It was the most extreme stupidity led by bad karma. They wandered astray through foreign lands, with every step they were proceeding along the wrong path of insulting the Dharma, with every step they were fleeing their father's homeland, what was to be gained by their going to India? Only hardship and privation in the mountains and the waters. I'm staying in a hotel. Okay, I got to confess, I'm not going to be that privatized. But I think the point holds the same. I am staying in a couple monasteries, but no, I'm not going to be chased by tigers in the mountains. I am going to a tiger reserve, but safely in a, in a car with a guide. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are dangers. This is what someone said. He said, how can you go to India? It's so dangerous. I said, I'm from Miami. You want to talk dangerous? I'll take downtown India anytime compared to downtown Miami. But that's another story. By the way, um, never mind. Um, okay. So where were we? They did not study. Why, why are they going to India? Only hardship and privation in the mountains and wars. They did not study the principle that the Western heavens, that's India, the Western heavens, that's another name for India, had gone to the east with Bodhidharma, and they did not clarify the eastward advance of the Buddha Dharma. And so they uselessly lost their way in India. They have reputations as seekers of the Buddha Dharma, but they did not have any will to the truth, 
with which to pursue the Buddha Dharma, and so they did not meet a true teacher, even in India. They only met fruitlessly with teachers of sutras and teachers of commentaries. The reason, and he goes on like this. Okay. In other words, it's not something you chase after, folks. We chase, chase, chase to realize there was nothing to chase all along. So here, why am I going to India? As the guy said, because sitting for a long time becomes tiresome. I'm going to go to see India. But it's here. If I go to see India, it's here if you're not. It's here where you're sitting. It's there. It's even in Canada and Mexico. It's everywhere is India. India, right? Mexico is another name for India. See? So is Virginia. See? So, anyway, to end this discussion, I'm going astray with extreme stupidity on the wrong path, and I am insulting the Dharma due to my bad karma, Bon voyage. I'll see you when I get back. Shall we close the sutra? Thank you for joining us for the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Tree Leaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, retreats, discussion, Jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.